This is a special edition of the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder, recorded in December 2016 at RMI's ELAB Annual Summit in Austin, Texas. American coal, nuclear energy, natural gas, hydro, solar power, wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. This is a special free bonus episode of the Energy Transition Show, brought to you in collaboration with Rocky Mountain Institute, or RMI, a clean energy think-and-do tank based in Colorado. One of RMI's initiatives is its Electricity Innovation Lab, or ELAB, an assembly of thought leaders and decision makers from across the U.S. electricity sector. ELAB focuses on collaborative innovation to address critical institutional, regulatory, business, economic, and technical barriers to economic deployment of distributed resources in the U.S. electricity sector. This is one of seven interviews I recorded with electricity sector experts in December 2016 in Austin, Texas, at the ELAB Annual Summit. The summit is a convening of electricity industry stakeholders, including state, federal, and local governments, utilities, regulatory agencies, renewables and DER companies, financiers, advocates, customers, and philanthropists that aims to advance the electricity system transformation toward a cleaner, more distributed, and more resilient grid for the 21st century and beyond. I'd like to thank RMI and ELAB for hosting this wonderful event in Austin and for inviting the Energy Transition Show to cover the event, which offered a unique opportunity to connect with these leaders in the electricity industry. So, on with the show. Okay, so our guest in this interview is Carl Popham, the Electric Vehicle and Emerging Technologies Manager at Austin Energy. Welcome, Carl, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Been a fan of the show before asked to come on, so oh, it's a nice. real, real honor to be here. Awesome. Thank, thank, thank you, Chris. So Austin Energy has been doing a lot of cool things we can talk about, but let's talk about its work on electric vehicles. Under your leadership, Austin Energy has really shown the way to an EV future in Texas, installing the first EV charging infrastructure in the region, offering rebates for installing charging stations, and the ability to charge up at 250 charging stations throughout the city for a flat rate of just $4.17 a month. Such a deal. Powering your chargers with 100% renewable energy to boot. I assume you've hacked your way through plenty of wilderness to do all that and pave the way for EVs in Austin, and I'm sure you've got some pretty useful insights for other cities and utilities who are contemplating how to encourage the transition to EVs in their cities. So let's start with some of the things that went right. Of all the programs and initiatives you've tried, which ones were really successful and effective? Well, uh, thank you, Chris, for allowing me to start with what's right <laughs> uh, versus lessons learned. Also, I know sometimes you do a drunk history version of, of the podcast with drinks. It and has been done, yes. Being that we're at a conference, I was expecting some beverage in here, but okay, I'll let that one slide. <laughs> uh, so the things I think we did right. So one very early on in the public infrastructure to really get people to understand what the cost was going to be for them. Having that fixed flat rate of 417 a month 
folks can really understand that versus trying to convert from kilowatt hours and what that means to gallons and those kind of things. So we right. really set a time of use rates even. Yeah, we really set an easy, strong signal out there. Another thing is that you had mentioned is we tie all the charging to the public infrastructure through our renewable energy credit program, Green Choice. To me, that's a no-brainer. That small half a cent or so upcharge per kilowatt hour has, has such amazing marketing benefits and really doubling down on the transportation electrification goals. So I would challenge any large network or any network to, to back up a program with renewable energy credit. It's really a, the right thing and smart thing to do. I would say our marketing campaign has been very successful. And I think what was key to that is my vision up front was it couldn't look like the city where utility owned or city owned department or specifically the utility. It couldn't look like the utility was doing this ad campaign because we were selling an idea to our community, idea city or electricity. And um, so the first campaign was charge for So what I, what I refer to it as, it was a creative led campaign. Mm. We'd kind of get the lawyers out of the room or the focus groups and then every business person who thinks they have a good idea, frankly. And then what you come up with is a lot of fine print and something that looks like a coupon, you know, in a print ad version. Right. So we really bashed that down and, and our marketing campaign and our folks behind that have gotten a lot of awards on this because it's very clean and simple and it's selling an idea and it's more like something you'd see you know out of a leading fortune 500 company than electric utility so I, I'd really rethink how you do a creative when you're bringing something new a disruptive technology to market and, and I'd say the last thing I'd want to say is there has been and there continues to be a lot of external funding for these type of electric vehicle programs there's a lot of state interest national interest philanthropic interest we've receive funds for all three of those types. Mm -hmm. So specifically within Department of Energy, we have received five U.S. Department of Energy grants, totaling over $7 million for the utility in these electric vehicle programs and related programs. So, you know, you don't have to be constrained to whatever budget you have because there's so many great organizations wanting to fund this type of work. Okay. So of the things you tried, which were unsuccessful? <laughs> you know, this is like the trick interview question. You know, what are your weaknesses? You know, I, I, well, no, I not, care not too much. Well, not that so much. Is, <laughs> what would you tell your peers not to do? So I'd say the landmine, and this was a landmine for the most part we avoided, but I see it killing other programs. You really don't want to let your traditional utility accounting run your public charging program. Hmm. What I mean by that is really take a value-based approach. So the financial gains of home charging from folks from buying EVs in the first place is huge. So basically you can add about 30 to 40% residential revenue for each EV a, a household buys. Okay. So it's very profitable revenue for utilities. A lot of the charging is done at night. About half of the charging is done just from a level one outlet. So it's a great trickle charge type opportunity. But when you deal with utilities, it's all about kilowatt hours and volumetric pricing, even though the reality is, is most of our fees is a fixed fee infrastructure pricing is what our costs are. Okay. So there's been a lot of buzz in utilities. Well, how can we get out of this volumetric pricing when most of our costs are fixed and right. business models and comparing it to the telcos with their minutes program. And right. Transportation electrification is a great way to put your foot into that arena and really see creatively how you can move forward innovative and new business models for the utility. Okay. 
So you also have several different projects underway in partnership with the Department of Energy, mm-hmm. which aim to develop fleet electrification tools. Look at electrifying buses, which I assume we're talking about city buses. Mm-hmm. Through our okay. Cap Metro, okay. uh, Austin Cap Metro, yes. And to develop a demand response pilot. You also have pilots underway to make EV charging stations available at multi-unit dwellings like apartment buildings and to install fast chargers at the Austin airport to power airport equipment. Mm -hmm. Um, And you have a variety of programs designed to educate customers and stakeholders and create awareness for electric vehicles. I mean, it really sounds like you're doing just about everything that can be done. So how's the response so far? Is the public getting interested? Are business owners and property managers installing chargers? And how are the pilots for electric buses and airport equipment coming along? Are you seeing indications that EVs can really scale up in a big way in Austin? Well, Chris, when you list it out like that, wow, that does sound like a lot, (laughs) doesn't it? (laughs) To me, it's just the weekly and the monthly work of deploying, having a great team, a very energetic, you know, our team acts more like a startup within the utility, confines of the utility. So we're more of a pirate ship, and then you have the mothership, Mm -hmm. which is utility doing its thing, and we're out exploring new opportunities for the utility. And so that's where we get that big laundry list of kind of some EV and some innovative work. Okay. But... More directly to your question, I, I agree, you know, it's a very comprehensive program. I've reviewed a lot of lists of what utilities can do, and we are active. We're either currently doing or have done really everything on those lists. We typically show up on every top 10 list, which is kind of rare for not being a West Coast utility. We've been cited by Chartwell and eSource and others as a best practice. So the industry response has been very positive. But more importantly for us, we have a strong community support, and this is demonstrated by One, we have a strong EV adoption curve. So when we launched these programs, I mean, it was a bet. When we launched them in late 2011 timeframe, we had a little over 100 electric vehicles in our service territory. So we have over 3,000 today, and and at that exponential growth rate, we really see it scaling. It can be a, a major player. Okay. We've also had strong supportive city council resolutions to include a recent city EV fleet adoption resolution. And then you had mentioned our growth from 113 and, and over 250. It actually, with the number of charging points we have today, it's actually over 400. And that's not the utility buying them and placing them. That's our partners buying them and installing charging infrastructure. And what we do is we provide a rebate to the customer and then kind of a turnkey operational approach. But that's a market-led. So the market has dictated that strong growth in infrastructure. So we've been very pleased with the support from our community, from our policy leaders. Any metric we kind of look at, we look at charging usage, both from an events and KDOH perspective, EV adoption, you know, other key metrics, they all just look like something that you would love your stock portfolio to look like, you know, that strong, sharp curve to the right. Right. That's what typically our metric reports that we have to report back to our commissions and council look like. So it doesn't sound like you're afraid of falling into sort of the classic EV trap of, you know, oh, let's do a pilot and then it just dies at the pilot. Uh, I am no longer interested in pilots for pilots' sake. Pilots, to me, have that connotation. It's a technical demonstration, and then it stays on the shelf where you write a report. Yeah. What I'm interested in is a phase one implementation. So even our big program right now called Shines, I don't refer to it as a pilot. I consider it a phase one rollout of what can be scalable and, and, mm. and big. So when someone approaches me with a pilot idea, I try not to roll my eyes. I try to listen to it, but I'm more interested in a phase one rollout because it's all about deployment now. It's all about execution. Execution, the technical and the feasibility stuff, we've really proven 
most of that, frankly. It's about the business models, it's about the outreach, it's about the consumer engagement. You know, we'll take care of the technical aspects of it, but it's really about that outreach and the business yeah. and the win-win for the customers and the utility. But on the whole, it sounds like you're pretty darn sure this EV thing is here to stay. This is not going to... Yeah, the genie's out of the bottle. Yeah, And the reason why I'm bullish on EVs is not because I think it's really about the driver experience. The early adopters were about some climate change and, and we did see a direct correlation with people had rooftop solar and if you bought an electric vehicle. Yeah. Now that's kind of gone by the wayside. As more EVs have come out and out, it's much more about the driving experience. There's a reason why car and driverless Tesla is the number one car, not number one EV and number one car. Most recently, the Chevy Bolt with a B, not yeah. Bolt, which that one's kind of a pet peeve of why they named it so closely to yeah, the other plug-in. <laughs> and then why I'm kind of on a tangent beating up on car manufacturers, I think their first marketing campaigns were terrible. Because, mm-hmm. well, first of all, you had, you had Nissan, it was kind of more of a save the planet. You yeah. know, a pregnant woman, you know, and it turned into a globe and that kind of thing. You had BMW, their ad was, they didn't even show the car driving around, it was being pulled over at the side of the road and a police officer writing a ticket with the tagline being, at least you saved money on gas. (laughs) And then my all time favorite, I'm just gonna call it the hashtag EV fell award, was on the Chevy Volt and it was a gentleman in a convenience store in distress, cramping up, needing to use the bathroom, but at least he doesn't need gas. He just has to really go to the bathroom. Terrible. That is pretty bad. Terrible. (laughs) And people buy cars. I mean, the financials now make sense today. If you look at how charging works, you can get under $200 a month leases on new EVs. The financials are done, but why I'm bullish, it's the emotional drive. If you drive a Tesla, and drive it around, I don't care what you drive, your car will feel sluggish, it will feel weird, it will feel, I mean, it's a difference between a driving a golf cart and a lawnmower tractor trailer. I mean, those are the drivetrain comparisons. And the technology is just wonderful. And so as people drive, customer satisfaction with these vehicles are very high. They repeat by them. It's here to stay, folks. As a utility, if you don't have an EV program or thinking about it, I think you're really missing the boat, which could be the biggest revenue generator potential for utilities since the air conditioning or probably even better than the air conditioning. Yeah, no, I think you're right about that. You know, one of the subjects that's really of a personal interest to me because I wrote a report on it earlier this year for RMI is how EVs can be demand response assets and provide grid services if they're charged at the right time and not charged at the wrong times. So I'm curious how your EV demand response pilot is working. Is there any useful data from it yet? And can we learn anything from it? Well, one is, so in 2013, we got a DOE ARPA-E grant. And the ARPA-E grants are more of the innovative out there, their right. grants. And so that was considered very innovative. One of the only utilities I know that's done a residential EV demand response pilot because it was funded as this ARPA-E innovation grant. What we learned is, kind of to my previous point, the technical feasibility is done. Specifically, what we learned is we're a fan and we continue to be a fan on our project Open Standards, in this case, the Open ADR 2.0, which is now 2.0B. Right. And I will not do a demand response pilot unless it's standard based and the standards of choice is Open ADR. I'm not interested in APIs or some specific, oh, we can do it this way because ultimately I don't want a separate platform for EVs. Mm -hmm. We have over 100,000 smart thermostats deployed. 
And that's about one in four every residence. So that's a pretty mature program. Right. Um, using open ADR, I can just tie into our existing thermostat program. So I, it's the same people. It's the same kind of concept. It's just not a communication standard. It's also about how you notify customers, how they do the opt-out. It really is, I think, a well-thought-out way to do it. Because as part of our DR grant, as a test, we tried it the API way and a custom way, as well as a standards way. Mm-hmm. API was just bickering between the different companies of how it works and your API, you know, all mm-hmm. the stuff that comes along with right. with, um, with an API, an application protocol interface, I believe is what the API stands for. Try to not use any acronyms here. Um, so, so now the next phase for me, once again, and that was a technical pilot, it's about the business models and the business model development that I'm excited about. So with our Shines project, it's very intensive on developing business models to include a residential storage solution and see what may make sense for our customers and for the utility so we can scale it. But it's scalable from a technical feasibility perspective. Now we need to figure out the financials and just run with it. You said you've got about 3,000 EVs on the road here mm-hmm. in Austin now. How many of those are actively participating in demand response services? Well, very few because okay. we don't have a program for it. Now, what we find with studies through Pecan Street, there is still, majority of charging is still done off-peak. I see. With that said, there is still significant value and you can move the curve. So how we moved it forward is we just recently, I mean, we sent out the mailer literally last week Hmm. on a time of use, home, EV specific, all you can drink per month charge. Okay. Um, And it's kind of a home and away program. And so that's a pricing signal for the customer. For $30, they can charge 24-7 in the public network or off-peak all they want at home. So that's how the program works. We've capped it as 100 participants because we want to get a pilot and you know understand the data. Right. We had 96 sign up to date interested in it. So we think we'll, we'll hit that cap. Yeah. And then we'll see how the numbers look. Right. And to my point earlier is how I think you have to look at EV participation. What utilities like to do is take one person in worst case scenario and how do we collect everything? I think really with a lot of the transportation electrification, you're more like running a gym, a gym membership. What does a group of 100 people do or typically I do? What does a block of 1,000 do? What does that bell curve look like? And overall, how can you figure out that business model? So you may have a loss leader potentially of 417 a month, but the reality is just like gym memberships, a lot of people don't use it or the car dealerships buys a year and it sits in the glove box. And so when you look at the whole 1,000 folks, yeah, you have some people getting a great deal because they have a workplace charging and that is wonderful and great for them. But you also have a segment of the population, they just kind of throw it in and don't think, and they just like it as a safety or a backup or kind of a premium parking or something along those lines. So if you can think in terms of blocks of 100 or blocks of 500, you can really, I think, come up with some interesting uh, business models. So one of the things I've been wondering is how you're communicating to your customers what the value is of an EV tariff. It sounds like you've got a a dedicated EV tariff now with a a time of use rate schedule, I assume. Correct. Okay. So is there like an additional piece of hardware to tell customers about that? Or do they just sort of know based on your informing them of when the good time to charge is and when the good time not to charge is? Well, to sign up for EV360, it is a process and it includes you get a separate submeter that oh, okay. manages that service point. Right. So that's the, the hardware part of it. How we let them know is once again through our marketing campaign. 
And a core tenet of our marketing since the first campaign, which was called Charge Forth, and now the new one releasing is Electricity Greater Than Gas, is we have people who are actually using the programs. It's like neighbor telling neighbor. So if you go to our website, and I'll plug it, it's pluginaustin.com. So once again, it's not austinage.com slash whatever slash whatever slash EVs. Right. Pluginaustin.com. Once again, it... it Keep it simple. Yeah, yeah. And it also has to... I I don't need to lead with the fact that this is the utility leading this necessarily because it's a community effort. Sure. So if you go there, you'll see a lot of testimonials of people saying of, of how they like driving EVs or mm-hmm. what it means to them or how they're saving the money or mm-hmm. the retired couple, a young hip couple. You know, it's kind of different single people, you know, different demographics that people can relate to. The guy who really has to go. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We don't retweet those adverts. <laughs> and you know what? And I've given that feedback to every national EV strategy person of all three of those organizations. I've probably talked to almost every car manufacturer, either their national or their global leader on EVs, I've had a discussion with. And I love beating them up on that one, by the way, because <laughs> it's just easy. It's just an easy, really, like, are you trying to kill the electric car? <laughs> So we, we know who a lot of our EV drivers are. We send them a mailer. And it wasn't the utility saying, hey, sign up, here's how it goes. It's someone who actually has gone through the process and is an EV360 customer. It's a photo of them smiling, wearing our shirt, and saying, this is what the program has saved me. It's pretty cool. Okay. So it's, it's someone who's doing it, telling other people, this is my experience, and maybe, maybe your results will be similar. Gotcha. So uh, based on your experience with managed smart charging so far, Are you able to project how much money it might save for Austin Energy and its electricity customers? Without a doubt. So from an AE perspective, you know, we as a public utility think in terms of of revenue, but we also want to think in profitable revenue because not all kilowatt hours are the same, obviously, because the market fluctuates throughout the day. But on average, every EV that I see driving around relates to about $400 per year in new revenue based on a 10 cent per kilowatt pricing tier, just to give it a sense. So our studies show most of this charging is done off peak, a perfect opportunity to take advantage of potentially underutilized resources to include our nighttime wind production. And and I don't know if you've ever been camping in West Texas, and, and I have been, that wind can really blow at night. It can be a nice, beautiful sunset, but part of the wind profile in West Texas, it really can just, these storms come at a night and blow through. So it takes advantage of a natural resource we have here in Texas, that that West Texas nighttime wind. And ultimately, this revenue that's collected is reflected in lower rates for all our customers as it leverages existing infrastructure. And so for 2017, Austin Energy, we actually lowered our rates by $42.5 million. So definitely, these savings do get passed along, and we take our affordability goals very seriously. From a customer savings perspective, you know they can quickly figure out pricing based on comparison to existing gasoline. So for example, if they have a workplace or other easy access to public charging, their fuel charge is flat 417 a month, you know, unlimited, not a bad deal. That includes DC fast, that includes level two, really no restrictions on that. Mm-hmm. If they want convenience and unlimited home and away charging, that's $30 a month via the time of use rate. So combine that with a lot of the great electric vehicles on market and some very competitive leases, you know, it's pretty easy for people to understand what this is going to hit in the household pocketbook. But as we're finding, as this is coming less of a niche market and more of a a real part of the percentage of car sales, the financial piece, that's basically done. 
That is done. Now it's about the emotional buy of the car or the value base of why people truly in their heart buy cars. And so I'm very curious and very excited about the new 30K or so Tesla that's coming out. You know, Volkswagen has some new products. There's a lot of exciting products that are all across the tier. So that's really what's helped smooth the market. And then ultimately, we need to start having some electric pickup trucks and SUVs because here in Texas, you're automatically discounting half the market right there if you, if you don't have that as an offering. So other than the Tesla SUV, which is still kind of niche, really that market hasn't been addressed. And right. personally, I think a pickup truck where not only was it electric for the value of electricity, it could be a tools work platform, you know, plug in your saws and that kind of thing. Sure. And I think it could be pretty awesome. Cool. So we don't have as much time to talk about this as I'd like, but I don't want to let you go without talking about the Austin Shines project. So in this project, you're pairing banks of lithium ion batteries with various things, with a residential neighborhood where homes have rooftop solar and smart appliances and maybe some EVs. Another one is paired with some commercial businesses that have rooftop solar systems. And another is a utility scale storage system paired with a community solar farm. And then you've got some hardware and software systems to integrate and control it all. Now, obviously, adding all these storage systems should allow you to accommodate more variable renewable power onto your grid than you could have done otherwise, and probably it'll reduce costs over time. But I guess what's not obvious to me is why you would have distributed storage installations like this. I mean, wouldn't it be cheaper to just have one big utility-scale storage system? Why indeed? (laughs) Yes, that's an excellent point and a question. And that's really a big component of the Shines and what I alluded to earlier. I'm not interested in technical pilots. So what Shines is, is potentially a phase one rollout and to answer that exact question. So specifically, we're going to develop several business models. So this include two types of utility scale systems, to your point. So one, a community solar storage solution, and then a community storage supporting distributed solar. Mm -hmm. We have two commercial business models, one being a utility optimized and a third-party aggregated business model. And three, we'll be deploying a residential business models, three residential business models, one being utility optimized, one being third-party aggregated, and a third being just an automated kind of fire forget control system. Hmm. So some of the advantage distributed allows more local control of the asset and ultimately delivers power to the closest usage point possible. So yes, the big financial gains are in the large utility-owned assets. I think that will be, you know, that's the hypothesis going in, and I think that's the facts we'll find out. But we see distributed really as a complementary technology that may address other value propositions to our customers. Okay, so basically, I guess the answer is in order to test a variety of business models and see different ways that you can actually use all these different storage systems. Yeah, without a doubt. And then for us not to think we have the answers, so we're working with actual customers, both residential and commercial, working with external stakeholders. So I I try not to lead these with, I have the right idea, or I I really want to have an open mind. And we even find with some of our, like even our community solar, we had several focus groups. We really thought they were gonna push more on what would be the quote unquote cheapest option, but that's what the focus groups were coming up with. Mm. So I don't want to necessarily assume I know, what that best business model and as part of the shines project so being the principal investigator on shines is i can't just do it for austin energy i have to compartmentalize the findings in such a way where any utility could take a look and say well we like that third-party aggregator model or the utility optimized model but we don't like this so that doesn't work for us so it's almost like a buffet approach we can take what models you think work for you 
Obviously, what your kilowatt hour charge and other things could have big swings in what business models. But also at the end of the day, is this is a phase one rollout of a storage platform solution for us. But from the Department of Energy Deliberals perspective, it will be presented in such a way where it can be not only scalable, but be replicated through other utilities. Very cool. Well, you know, as time goes on and, and that program develops and evolves, I'd love to have you back on the show at some point and tell us what you've learned from all this stuff, how it's working. I'd be happy to, especially if you let me start with what's working right and then follow up with the landmines or whatnot so much. <laughs> and I know we're going to have some on this one. It's, it's complicated. It's complex. But once again, we have a wonderful team working on it, doing a lot of the heavy lifting, and I think it's going to be an amazing project. Super. Well, thanks very much, Carl. I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Chris. Pleasure to be here. I hope you enjoyed this special free bonus episode of the Energy Transition Show, brought to you in collaboration with Rocky Mountain Institute, or RMI, a clean energy think-and-do tank based in Colorado. For more information about RMI's eLab and to learn how to get involved in its various events, see the link in the show notes. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.